Welcome to Neighborhood Church. To learn more about who we are as a community or to financially support Neighborhood, go to neighborhoodchurchmn.org. Enjoy the message. All right, here we go. All right, the best five-minute break of your life. All right, so we are continuing our series called um, uh, Reimagine. And the whole concept... (laughs) Dana has a puppet of a donkey that she found and likes to show it to me. So, <laughs> um, what are we on? Reimagine. And the whole concept of reimagine is there's things that maybe you held on to or given to you, values, beliefs, um, habits, uh, that at one point meant a lot to you. They brought you a lot of joy. And then maybe something shifted in your life um, where no longer it brought you joy, maybe even robbed you of joy. Um, and we're trying to, like, think through what are things that maybe we've put down that maybe if we're willing to reimagine, uh, it might be able to inspire us again. Like two weeks ago, Mike Valdez talked about reimagining the Bible. The Bible is a conversation I have with lots of people. They're like, no, thank you. It brought so much harm to me, right, as a teenager. And uh, that's valid, and what you feel is valid. Um, but, like, for me, I've been able to reimagine what the Bible has never been more life-giving to me than in the last, like, three or four years. And so today we're talking about, um, like, when you get together for Thanksgiving, this is a conversation you probably have a lot, right? This is someone you get together with your friends, and you're like, let's talk about hell. I know, right? Yeah? We are reimagining hell. And why? When you use that word, because it can be appropriate and inappropriate all at the same time. Um, uh, It's incredibly important because... um, Hell has been used to um, bring violence and shame amongst a lot, a lot of people. And so why? Of all the things, hell, why? Well, Thanksgiving was just recently, and if you were raised as a fundamentalist, conservative, evangelical, anyone else out there, right, you had to, or we had to stay in the basement, right, or turn the lights off so we didn't get any trick-or-treaters, and we'd go to, like, a, a harvest party because, if you call something a harvest party, you're tricking the, tricking the devil, right? You're saying, not today, Satan. It's not a Halloween party. It's a harvest party. And we dress up like Bible characters. Ah, no blades in our apples, Satan. So, um, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Um, but that was, that was my lived experience. But I learned something recently to the gift that Twitter, the dumpster fire that Twitter is, it brought me some new life. Um, I learned about something called um, hell houses. Anyone else ever heard of a hell house, right? So it's not a haunted house, it's a hell house. And you walk into it, and it's put on by churches, and um, each room is going to depict how you can go to hell, things you might be doing that will send you to hell, Carly. And then also, um, they'll display what would happen in hell to you if you did those things, right? And they are literally trying to scare the hell out of you. Because at the end of it, thank you for laughing, uh, at the end of it, there is a, like a pastor or someone handing out pamphlets or tracts of where they um, get you to say the, not the Lord's Prayer, the salvation prayer, the sinner's prayer. And if you can imagine, if you're like a 14-year-old that showed up because your friend, like some girl that you thought was cute invited you, you all go to this, and then you were traumatized at the end. Someone goes, so do you want to do that or do you want to go to heaven, say these 14 words? He's like, 14 words? Let's do it. All right? You know, you know why they do it? It works. <laughs> I had a friend that watched Heaven's Gates, Hell Flames, if there's anyone from the AG back in the day. Um, we watched it on a video in his bedroom, 
And at the end of it, he was so traumatized. He's like, I don't want that to happen. I'm like, you're welcome, my man. Now let's say this prayer. And he did, right? And about two weeks later, it was, he wasn't scared anymore, so he didn't have to follow Jesus anymore. But when we use hell as a form or as a motivating way to move towards divine love, there's something kind of backwards in that. And so we're going to talk a little bit about um, where did it come from. But the, the concept of hell which I don't believe in anymore. I was able to deconstruct that. It was the number one hardest thing for me to reimagine. Why? Because if it really did exist, that's a long time to be wrong about something, right? That's the argument. Um, But I can't engage with a God. I can't worship a God that would, um, the people would say, well, God doesn't like make people go to hell, our free will. If God even created human humans to have even the opportunity, even the slightest chance that they go to spend eternal conscious torment of all time, that's not a God that I want to worship. To me, that is a monster God, right? That if you get, you don't get the right words at the right time, you weren't born in the right country, in the right town, right? And you didn't, somebody didn't say to you, like there's an old story of where um, these missionaries went up to the indigenous people in Alaska, a remote place that no missionary has ever been to, you know, God forbid, and they show up, and they're conversing, and they were talking, and they started to share after weeks about the gospel of Jesus and that you can go to heaven, and if you don't, then you're going to hell. And one of the leaders um, of the indigenous people said, well, what if we never heard about God? What if we never heard about Jesus? Would we go to hell? He said, no, no, we have a loving God. And he said, then why did you tell us? Right? Isn't that? But it's, it's funny, but it's, it's, it's totally true. So why do we need a hell quickly, all right? I, I think the mo- majority of people who believe in hell, um, which I don't think is some like, hor- well, that's complicated. I don't blame the individual. How about that, right? They've been handed something that's portrayed in media, that's portrayed um, in churches, and it's loosely talked about mostly in fear. Um, but I think people believe in hell because it doesn't cost them anything. If you're a Christian and you're already in the in club, you're already saved, you don't have to really worry about it. You're like, well, I know where I'm going, right? So you have no agency. You're like, well, whatever you guys want to do, go for it, but I, right? And secondly, um, if you really did believe in hell, like you actually did, and you didn't spend every waking moment of your life trying to get people you like, not let alone love, to say some prayer to get them into heaven for all time, then you too are a monster. You're sitting on your hands letting people, if you really do believe in that, And secondly, I think people institutionally believe in hell because it helps a group of people feel a little bit more sparkly, right? We need some bad people to make us look even better, right? And then we can use to justify, well, those people, that demographic, right? Well, too bad they're going to hell because we're going to heaven, party, right? So where does this concept of hell even come from? Like, is it actually in the Bible? And the nuanced answer is, Kind of, <laughs> all right? So um, we're going to be looking at the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, there's a word called Sheol, right? And this is a, a very nuanced, mystical um, idea of reality. And uh, it's, it's like a place that is shadowy, that's kind of murky. But nowhere in the Hebrew Bible does it, like, articulate specifically what morally or ethically things you did or did not do that would send you there. One rabbinical tradition believed that's just where everybody goes. 
and doesn't imply that it's a place of joy. It does not imply that it's a place of eternal suffering. It just kind of ambiguously just like says, yeah, this kind of exists. And then um, Moses in Deuteronomy 30 stands up uh, with his killer robe and his big old staff, and he says, if you want, do you want life or death, right? And w- if you take a literal translation, w- we, would, we would say, well, they're choosing if they want to physically live or do they want to die. Is Moses drawing a line in the sand and says, all right, everyone who choose life, just come on this side of the mountain, and everyone else, you're just going to go like, I'll take my staff and hit it, and there'll be a big old thing of fire you fall into. What do you want to choose? That's not at all what Moses is implying. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, when they talk about life and death, it's all about present reality. Do you truly want to live? And if you do, here's these Ten Commandments. If you do, here's this Levitical law, and it gives you step by step with fire and burning and hair and blood, right? And it's very messy and complicated, but incredibly progressive as a step by step of how to have right relationship between you and your partner, you and the ground, and you and God. It's actually brilliant. And if you truly want to live... This is how you go about doing it. And so in the Hebrew Bible, it seems like they're just not as concerned about what's going to happen in the next life. Like, it's very, very vague. In Psalms, they use a lot of metaphors. In Job, they talk about Job, like, descending a little bit. Um, Because the Hebrew people came out of generations and generations of slavery from the Egyptians. Egyptians were very articulate about what to do and when to do it and how to do it in the to get to the place that you desire. And it's like the Hebrew people looked at it and said, we're happy for you, <laughs> but that's not our present reality. They're way more interested in a flourishing life now. And it's not just for an individual. This is a modern way of thinking about Christianity, of your personal relationship with Jesus, which is very important. I'm not mocking it. But in the Hebrew Bible, it's really about the individual as much as it's about the community or is about the people. It's a very, lo- like if my brother's hurting, we are all hurting. Individual Christianity says, if you're hurting, too bad, <laughs> right? You should have tried harder. So there's that in the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible. In the New Testament, um, there's like 12 or 13 times that uh, a modern interpretation has used these words and uses the word hell, essentially. And about 11 or 12 of those, guess who brings it up the most? It's not Paul. It's Jesus. <laughs> Jesus speaks the most about this, which is fascinating, Right? Because if you think about hell in the way, a modern way of thinking, well, somewhat modern way of thinking about it, you're like, well, why would Jesus be talking about that when we see this Jesus, we have a Jesus-looking God who's all about love, hell seems like it's kind of backwards. Exactly. So, uh, one of the words that uh, Jesus used is the word um, Gehana, right? And Gehana is this combination of words that actually depicts a valley in a very specific place. It's on the southwest side of Jerusalem. And in this valley... Uh, they would have all these fires burning all the time because that's where they would go and essentially burn their garbage. It was like a pre-modern floodwood is really what it was like, right? Yeah, you're welcome, everyone. <laughs> I, actually, I actually made sure that the flood of people who are in our church with them, I'm like, this is a banger of a joke, just so you know. Um, <laughs> uh, why am I telling this? Okay, so um, there is a place where there's garbage and it's always burning. And if you're burning all this waste, there's going to be food scraps. And there's food scraps, there's going to be all these wild animals, right? And wild animals, when they see food together, they start a coalition and they vote in members and say, let's make sure everyone gets the same amount of food. No. What do they do, right? They begin to, like, fight. They begin to, like, show their teeth. They might even say they might have you have some gnashing of teeth. Fire, 
gnashing of teeth, consequences, right? So Jesus, when he tells stories, these, these parables, right? They're, they're actual stories, but he uses concrete places and time so they could visualize it, they could smell it. They're like, oh, I remember scary Uncle Gary lived like two blocks from there. He always smelled like the garbage, right? So they could visualize a local place that Jesus then would invite them into an uh, infinitely wider way of thinking about belonging to God. It's actually beautiful, and he uses very specific words um, be, because there's just such a higher way of thinking about God. Help people disrupt. They're like, oh, I thought it was always this way. And Jesus says, you heard it this way. Now reimagine it. It could be like this. Second word that Jesus uses is um, Hades, right? And Hades uh, would be this, um, oh, and we're going to loop back to Gehenna in a second. But, but Hades would be like the Greek mythological version of um, Sheol, right? It's this place where there is some suffering, but it's not even super, super clear um, of how and why one would get there. And the place that Jesus uses that we're going to camp out for a little bit is uh, Luke, yes, Luke 16. And here, Jesus is telling a story. Now, let's just put a pin in it for a second. Step over here. Um, I take the Bible incredibly seriously, but not always literally. There's times I take it literally. When Jesus says to uh, love one another, when Jesus says love your enemies, I literally believe that to be true. Um, but when Jesus is telling a story, he's telling a parable, and then we um, try taking that story as literal, um, we're missing the plot. Because, again, Jesus is telling this wider story that we can insert ourselves into. And between uh, Vernita Jane and myself, the way we're going to have an interpretation and experience of that story is going to be different because we have different lived experiences. Does that make sense? So anytime we try saying, no, you can only experience it this way, we're discounting everyone else's. So when someone says, well, this is a biblical worldview, you can just take out biblical and say, this is your worldview. Right? And that's not bad, but we have so many different ways of being and belonging. Oh, I could talk about that forever. Okay, back to Luke 16. So for the sake of time, I'm just going to run through the story. I'd love for you have to read it and see if I made anything up. And you can be like, you did. And I'm like, no, I didn't. So um, it's about the, this rich man and Lazarus. And the setting is a uh, rich man is a big, rich man who lives in a big, rich house, and he's got big, rich dogs, right, and big, rich friends. And then there's Lazarus, who's a beggar. And he's got sores over his body because of, uh, I'm assuming, some sort of disease. Um, and since he has this disease and he has these sores, he can't really belong to anything, really. He's kind of like the outcast. And so where does he go to get food? Out of big, rich friend's house. And he sits himself there, and he goes, hey, big, rich guy, do you think maybe I could get some food? And big, rich guy goes, hey, how about this? I'll let my dogs out, and they can lick your sores because that's what big, rich people do, let their dogs feed off the bodies of poor, oppressed people. Literally in the story. Um, so, uh, all of a sudden, they both die. How convenient that they die at the same time or similar time. And um, where Lazarus goes, the beggar, he's carried off by an angel to, uh, on the side of Abraham. And Abraham is like the hero of faith. If you had to, like, translate and try to think of a modern way of who Abraham is, like the peak of human existence, it'd be like Lazarus got to sit at the right hand of Taylor Swift, right? And that might be blasphemy. Right? I told you, I might have some laughs in me, but it's pretty close. Right? I think I could draw a straight line between the two. Um, and so Lazarus the beggar ends up in this place, but it doesn't tell you if it's a good place or a bad place. It never, it never, we, as a modern interpretation, insert that must be heaven. We don't know, but it's a place where Taylor Swift is, so it's got to be great. Um, rich man um, dies, and he's carried to Hades, right? that word. 
And some modern translations use hell instead of Hades. Um, but here there is pain and there's suffering. And a rich man is like, I am not a fan of this place. Like one out of five stars. I do not recommend. Um, but in this place, in this story that Jesus is telling, he looks over and he can see Abraham and he can see Lazarus. And he can have a conversation. He reaches out. He's like, hey, Abraham, not to bother you, but like, I don't like this place. And Abraham says, well, um, Lazarus lived a hard life, and you lived, like, got everything you really wanted. And so you got to there because of that, and Lazarus got there because of that as well. He's like, oh, too bad for me. And then he says, well, can you at least ask um, Lazarus to bring water over to me, and so I can, he can dip it on my tongue because I'm in agony, is what he says. And so Abraham goes, man, I got good news and bad news, and they're both the same. That chasm that's between us, we can't go over it, and you can't go come to us. But we can have a conversation, and we just can't cross it. And then uh, he goes, or the rich man goes to Abraham, please, will you send someone to my family? And please tell them so that I, they don't have to have this existence, that they can change their ways, they can turn or burn, and I hope they turn. And Abraham says, right, he goes, ooh, you know, they have the prophets and they have the scriptures, the holy writings, and if they couldn't hear that, them, why would they hear a resurrected body, right? And that's end scene, right? That's how it wraps up. So a couple takeaways before we get to the big question. Um, the, the first is um, if you're going to take this literally, which there's a lot of people who say, oh, no, this is a, a depiction of what hell's really like. And I'm like, well, A, it's a story. And then they point to Revelation, and that's also a story. We can talk about that later. Um, uh, and, but in hell and heaven, then can we just have, like, open conversations? Is that is it just like we just like, hey, I'm burning. And the other guy's like, that's too bad for you. I'm actually living life over here, right? So in that version, there's still a communication. There's still a relationship, but there's a chasm between the two, which to me, you want to take that literally? That's great. To me, Jesus is trying to tell this bigger story. Um, and the second is, the biggest question is, um, why? Why does Lazarus go to Taylor Swift, and why does a rich man go to hell? I'll tell you this. This is what me and many other people think. is because um, Lazarus died a long time ago. He had a physical death, clearly, but he died many, 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 many years ago. And the rich man still hasn't really died. Why? Liberation theology, which we use all the time here, is the, this belief that whoever is oppressed, whoever is a victim, whoever is suffering, that is where you find the Christ. God is always on the side of the marginalized. And no one had to remind Lazarus, hey, man, you got a pretty hard life. He's like, oh, right? It's not like Lazarus woke up one day. He said, you know, it would be a really great time. He's with his buddies. He's like, you know, it would be really silly. If I just got, like, this disease and I just couldn't move and I had to beg for food and dogs were looking off me, wouldn't that be a great life decision, right? He never chose that. He's in a system that says you're not even really human. He's in a system that says even dogs can look at you and everyone tolerates it. And even Lazarus, like, I guess this is just how it is. When you are in suffering, no one has to remind you that it's really hard. You don't have to think about, like, I wonder if I'm in need, <laughs> Well, if I could have a wish, I wonder if I would want a Corvette or maybe just to be believed, right? When your health care for trans students, trans people gets ripped from you and your rights, you don't have to remind them, like, are you doing okay? They're like, no, I'm not okay. They died. 
a long time ago because culture killed them. The system killed them. And that is where God is. That's what Lazarus did, right? Then the rich man, he's still dead. Why? Because he went to Abraham and said, Abraham, tell Lazarus to bring me water. Why? Because people like Lazarus, that's what they do for people like me. He's still living in the same reality of people like me get to use people like you for my pleasure, for my power, for my life, for my economics, whatever it is. At any time that you put yourself above any other group of people, any time you center your power and say, no, no, I get to treat you like this, well, those people, they're the ones who do that kind of work, right? Well, those people, they're the ones that we just kind of tolerate. Those are the ones we laugh at. Those are the ones we just like say, oh, it's really nice to see you, right? And anytime you dehumanize someone, that is hell, period. It's in those hellish places. And so I don't need some external place in the future of conscious torment to move me towards divine love. Hell is everywhere. Hell is literally burning around everywhere. So example, when Jesus tells the story about gouging out the eye, remember that? It's better to like, cut off your hand, better to uh, gouge out your eye than to dehumanize anyone, right? He said it's better to do that than to suffer the flames of Gehenna. He's pointing back. And so what would that mean? Well, have you ever sat down with someone who's a victim of domestic violence? That's hell. I imagine at some point they would say, I'd rather me or someone else pop an eye out than to live this hell for the next two to ten forever years of what that person robbed of me, right? Jesus is using specific words and incredible violent things to communicate even more violent, toxic ways of what hell can rob people of. Does that make sense? Like, you ever met with someone who's gone through an incredibly toxic, painful divorce? I imagine at some point they would have rather been popped an eye out, cut a hand off, than the absolute pain they had to suffer financially, emotionally, mentally, relationally, right? All that. That's hell. It'd be better just to get something over with than have to do with that hell. Jesus is saying, there is evil in this world, and what do you want to do with it? Right? So, that's the question. What do we want to do with it? First, and this is way too short and way too fast for a very, very in-depth, nuanced thing. But um, you might be thinking, and I'm going to be answering questions up front after if you're like, what about this, right? I, that, I'm just throwing that out there because uh, this stirs the pot. You're welcome. So <laughs> if, if I don't believe in a, 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 a hell, right, but we have a God who, this is the argument. Well, we have a just God, and people have free will, and God doesn't send to hell. Like, they choose to not believe in Jesus, so they go to hell. So then, Chris, if, there's the, if, the, if evil is a reality, how does God justify that? How does God rectify or reconcile that? Well, here's what I believe. Um, open relational theology or process theology is that there's things that God can't do, right? This <laughs> is so much in, like, this amount of time. There's things God can't do. God can't force me to do anything. God can't stop a mudslide, right? But what God is, is God is in every element of energy of the entire universe and every star and every blade of grass, in Chub Lake especially, and in me, right? And I do evil, right? Evil exists. Evil is a real thing. Um, and I do evil. Um, and as a human, I have the propensity to do incredibly evil things. 
I believe since I'm made in the image of God, that you are made in the image of God, and in the core of all of us is divine love, when I encounter divine love, the true self will be exposed. And all the other things, all the other evil, toxic things will be shut off because it can't help but respond to perfect love. Right? And you have probably a thousand questions. We'll talk about that later. But th- this idea then is, and there's a lot of people who don't like this word, but I happen to believe it, is this would be like um, uh, universality. That everybody, regardless, encounters this divine love. So, whew, put a pin in that. Second, right? So then how do we respond to hell? If that, to what I believe theologically, what about now? Because again, I think even in the New Testament, especially Paul, especially the words of Christ, is like, yeah, whatever's next, big fan, but how do we experience heaven right now, and how do we push back against the gates of hell currently? And I love using the word push back against the gates of hell because um, there's like women's retreats, right? And then there was men's retreats, and there was a group of men who are like, whoa, 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 whoa. We never retreat. We have men's advances. And so tell me you're an insecure, toxic person. <laughs> they can't, I don't retreat. I don't lose. Um, and so I like the idea of advancing against the gates of hell because it makes me laugh. But it's true. Then how can we push back? Because first, it's really easy for us to depict or see hellish things um, outside of us. And that, uh, the war that's happening right now in the Middle East, that is absolute hell. Um, maybe in different communities and different systems of oppression, we say that's hell. And that's important that we see that. But what we lack often is we don't look at the hell that's inside of us. Right? We numb ourselves, we distract ourselves, we work extra hours so we don't have to think about the hellish things that are happening in us. Well, like what, Chris? What could be hell inside of me? Great question. How about this? Anytime you look in a mirror, do you look in the mirror and say, you are a miracle, right? Hello, Chris, right? For me, three other times, I'm like, hello, Chris. Seven other times, I'm like, what happened to me? <laughs> Someone to give you my hat. <laughs> right? And why do we do that? Because we see ourselves as some sort of disappointment, and in that is hell. Right? Um, uh, maybe the hell is that you tolerate what your, your partner's been doing to you for way too long. Emotionally, uh, spiritually, right? Physically. Man, we... You, we there's all these hellish things, and we have to take the time to slow down. And you know why we don't like doing this? You know why we medicate ourselves from these things? Because it costs you something, right? It costs you a lot of emotional and physical energy. Uh, like for, for, for me, there's things that I'm going through that I'm noticing that was absolute trauma. And when it gets dialed up, I had an anxiety attack on Thursday from walking in a building that I just forgot I had this incredibly traumatic experience in, this conversation where I had to relive all of it, and I'm having this meeting, and all of a sudden I begin to sweat, and my hands begin to shake. And the first time I meet with them, like, are you okay? And I'm like, I don't think I'm okay. <laughs> um, so what do we, once you recognize it, then what are you willing to try, right? Because you are not limited to keep in that flames. You don't have to just keep tolerating it. So maybe it's time that you call HR, and you finally tell HR what that guy has been saying to you as a joke for the last five years. Maybe it's calling up your health insurance to finally find the clinic or the place of where you can get treatment for this place, right? It may, maybe it's you going to your partner and saying, 
I cannot tolerate this anymore. I am worth more than this. And again, going back to Lazarus, you can't do that until you die. To whatever you're tolerating, you have to die to it. And I believe Jesus, he says, um, you don't truly live until you die. Because you can't actually find transformation, because the only way you find transformation is in death. Right? It's the only way. So to my sober friends, you can't find transformation until you hit what? Rock bottom. You can try, you can make it up, and you can pretend it, but it's not until you have that lived experience you say, I am ready for new life. And you're worth that new life. When we need to, like, it comes January, you're like, oh, I'm going to lose 30 pounds. No, you're not. <laughs> right? right? You won't take that seriously until you have some medical scare or someone close to you has that medical scare that it actually scares the hell out of you where you're like, I have to make a decision. Financially, relationally, until you hit that rock bottom, until you hit that pain, it's only then will you find new life. Right? Secondly, buckle up for this one. So, there is this, uh, I'm in, uh, do you guys hear them in seminary? No big deal. So, um, I'm taking a queer and trans theology class, and we just talked about this last week. Out of the queer theology movement, there is this um, expression, it's called indecent theology. I've never heard about it before. And it's, it's brilliant, because when you hear the word indecent, especially tied to theology, which is God talk, how you think about God, when you hear the word indecent, it evokes some sort of emotion. Because you think about indecency being naked or vulnerable. And that's not met with like, wow, you're naked. That's amazing, right? It's usually like filled with shame, right? And vulnerability and all these not good feelings. And um, these queer theologians brought up the idea of indecency because that also invo uh, invokes there's something decent, right? Who gets to decide what's decent? Whoever is the cultural powerful norm. Right? And currently, this would be um, uh, cisgendered, straight, heteronormative, white people. I think you can even say men. The patriarchy exists, right? And whatever they find pleasure with their body, whatever they find um, brings them joy, whatever brings them power, they say, whoa, this is sacred. No, this is good. This is holy. This is decent. That also implies anything that fits outside of that lived experience is what? Indecent. Well, guess what? When some person who doesn't fit that normative says, well, I'm made in the image of God, and you cannot separate uh, the experience of God from your body. You can't separate experience of God separate from your body. And if they're made in the image of God, and they're like, well, this is how I find inclusion. This is how I find pleasure with my body. This is how I find belonging. And for someone to say, no, that's indecent, that's shoving them back in the closet, and that's hell. Indecent theology brings and centers people's lived experience and bodies and pleasure and joy and belonging and sacredness and says, you are a miracle. It's time you start living like it, right? Because anytime we deem something indecent, when it is consensual adults who are just being themselves, we're pushing them back into hell. And I have given my life's work. I'm done with that. Why? Because to me, this is the resurrection. You're like, hmm, that's interesting, Chris. <laughs> Indecent theology is resurrection 100%. And here's why. When Jesus came out of that tomb, he didn't come out and say, this is a, like a really cool party trick. And like, hey, guys, when you die, guess where you're going? Not there. You're going over here, right? Like, 
It's so much more. Jesus in resurrection comes out of that tomb and says, this body matters. Scarred, wounded, a brown Jewish rabbi body says, this body matters. And resurrection is going around and reminding each other, your body matters. The gospel, the good news, is that you've never been separated from God. That is something that we made up. You've always been loved. You've always belonged. And when Jesus gives a great commission to go into all the world and, and, and display the gospel, the good news, it's going around and reminding one another, your body matters. And your body might be different than my body. And the way you use your body might be different from my body, but it still belongs and is sacred and it is beautiful. And when we say this body matters, we're saying how you use your body, your art, your activism, your parenting, the way you feed people, it all matters. So what I love about this community and I hope this is true for everyone, that this is a place of where we can process, celebrate, grieve, question of what it looks like to be fully myself. And I hope that there's places like in your office, you say, my door is always open. It's a place of where people can be safe to process of what it looks like for them to be them. That your table, maybe your minivan, right? As you're driving to like the 100th band practice, where those kids can have a place to process. I've given myself to this work because I believe it to be the work of Christ. And I invite you to participate. And before I pray, I just want to look at all of you and say that you are a miracle and you are worth it. I think it's time that we start living like it. Let's pray. So God, I thank you that you are the fullness of love. And an expression of of Christ, of Jesus, we get to see what love does. And love does not shame people into making a decision. Love does not dehumanize people. Love does not um, uh, tower over people. What love does is get low and sees people and believes people. So I ask, even now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and remind us for the first time or the hundredth time, that we are a miracle. And the hellish things inside of me do not need to define me anymore. And as we name and as we recognize those hellish things, words, experiences, images, like videos, we say, no more. I am deeply and wonderfully made. And I'm a child and friend of God. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you will give us the wisdom and the moxie and the power to live like that. And that we can partner in this indecent theology. You expose our biases. You expose the ways that we maybe have participated and that we can welcome and notice and believe people, period. So use us, use this church, and use us. And thank you, God, that for eight years we've been able to participate in this good and beautiful life. Amen. All right. So um, that was a lot. (laughs) If you want to process and you have questions or you want to pray, I'll be up here fiddling around and just make our way up and we can talk. Thank you for the last eight years, and thank you for this weekend. Enjoy the rest of your weekend.